them do one move at a time. The U.S. Chess Podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess Podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Just Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the December edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is John Davison Rockefeller V, who is the catalyst for our December Chess Life cover story announcing his $3 million gift to U.S. Chess. John is a chess dad, scholastic director of the Maryland Chess Association, and an active volunteer helping U.S. Chess, especially as chair of the Development Committee and vice chair of the Scholastic Council. He earned a Ph.D. in American Literature from Johns Hopkins University. His father is John Davison J. Rockefeller IV, who is a former governor of and U.S. Senator from West Virginia. Welcome to One Move at a Time, John D. Rockefeller V. Dan, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, great. And I'm, I'm re- really looking forward to this recording with you. And I, I want to start where I normally start, which is what has just meant to you in your life? Well, I, um, like a lot of parents, uh, I think I played a little bit as a kid. Uh, but, then, uh, you know, so I, I, in particular, I played with my grandfather a lot. I remember that in the uh, early 80s, I carried around that, uh, you know, Mattel computer chess that unbeknownst to me had uh, uh, Bruce Pendolfini on the back of it. Um, and, uh, but then I, and then, uh, then I just stopped playing for whatever reason. I cannot remember. I never played in a tournament. I, um, I don't even think I had lessons, uh, you know, formal lessons or anything with like, with a coach or anything, uh, or, um, but, uh, you know, and then I, so 25 years passed, it's uh, 2008, uh, and uh, my daughters and I, I like playing games with my daughters, and uh, we were playing Connect Four, uh, you know, lots, many, many, many times. And then at some point, I just couldn't bring myself to play another game. Uh, I thought, you know, there's got to be something else out there that's more, you know, uh, intellectually stimulating. And I had, I had this in my, um, in my den, uh, no, in our, in our living room, I had a picture of my grandfather and me playing and I believe it was 1977 or 78. I can't remember which, uh, there was a picture of us playing. And then unfortunately he died. Um, and he died in 78 and I think the picture was taken in 77. And, um, and that was my, you know, real connection with him just that, that's that picture. You know, I was young, I was nine, so I don't have a whole lot of memories of him. Um, but uh, that was, you know, my connection to my grandfather and my remaining connection to chess. You know, I'd been in my bedroom for many years. Uh, and then when, uh, you know, I, I got married and had kids, 
and uh, you know was living in Baltimore. It was in our um, in our um, uh, you know living room, uh, Danak. I can't remember which. And um, and I just saw it, and I said, you know, oh, let me chess. I kind of think I remember something about that. You know, maybe I have a I have a board someplace. So I went in the basement and looked, and um, uh, there it was, and there was a set. And I said, great, let me you know get out the pieces and and see if I can make this happen. And I mean, I really, I, I think I, I I'm pretty sure I remembered how, I I remembered how all the pieces moved. But, you know, I think I remember castling. I doubt I knew anything about Queenside castling. I certainly didn't know anything about En Passant. And so we just started playing. Uh, and then I went online and I said, you know, this would be great if uh, my kids could do this at school. So, um, I, you know, I Googled the name of our um, my daughter's school. It's an all-girls school. And I typed in, I think, chess club. And this uh, guy's name uh, popped out, Chris Kim. And so um, I emailed him or called him and he said, oh, you know, I've been you know, really hoping someone would help me start a chess club. Uh, and um, so uh, let's let's do this. Um, uh, you want to come over? And I said, sure. Yeah, I'd love to come over. And he had uh, my daughter's names are Laura and Sophie and his uh, daughter's names are um, uh, Madeline and Charlotte. And uh, so we came over and you know, Laura and Sophie said, oh, you know. You know, we recognize you, all right, and then, you know, so they knew each other a little bit. Uh, his daughter's a little older, um, and so he said, "Hey, you know, come in." And do you, you know, he said, "Do you want to? Do you want to see watch them play chess?" Or whatever. I said, "Sure, it'd be great." And they started playing Blitz, and I had never, I didn't even know Blitz existed. I didn't know anything about it, and they were just so fast. And I, of course, it was purely spectacle for me at that point. I mean. You know, probably after about the first three moves, I couldn't even follow the game. They were both quite good players. Um, actually, I think both of them uh, were, Madeline was both a Denker and um, uh, a Herring representative uh, for Maryland, and Charlotte was a Herring representative. Um, uh, at the time, it was called National Girls. And uh, it was just phenomenal to see. So I said, oh, you know, this is incredible. I, I want to do this. So um, he said, you know, hey, you want to help me um, run a chess club at our school? And I said, absolutely. So we started running a chess club. And, you know, then it just kind of gave us a purpose. Um, I think I'd been looking for a new, better way to connect with my daughters as well. Uh, And so chess just became that way. It maybe not wasn't their absolute favorite way. But um, uh, I remember actually we would, uh, uh, we went to our first tournament. I think it was called, you know, Indie Chess. Windy Hill, and it was in October 2008, and we go, and I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be great, uh, so we go, and it, you know, chess tournaments can be all-day events, it was it was a long drive, about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, so it was a long drive there, and we played, and as we're coming back, I'll never forget this, as we're coming out, uh, I think I helped, you know, maybe set up some of the pieces, or uh, you know, break down, or something like break down the equipment, and as we come out, uh, just a torrential rainstorm, you know, it was just, we were soaking wet. And, um, so we drive home and we're wet and we walk up our stairs. And I remember, you know, we have, a, um, a, a lot of stairs to get up to, to our house. So we live on the side of the hill. And so I just thought, oh my gosh, they just they hated it. They never know I want to do this again. And so I just turned to them and, you know, kind of tentatively said, so, you know, girls, what do you think? And, and Laura said, hey, hey, can we go to one tomorrow? 
And I thought, oh, wow, that's great. They're hooked. Now, I think at the time, I thought they were hooked on chess. And looking back on it, um, or, you know, I soon realized, no, it wasn't they were hooked so much on chess. It's they really wanted to um, hang out with Madeline Charlotte. So, uh, you know, I'd say, hey, there's a, you know, a, a MCA and Maryland chess tournament coming up, uh, you know, a month from now. Do you want to go? <laughs> and they would always just go, oh, are Madeline Charlotte going to be there? And so for them, that was their, um, that was, you know, what they loved about chess, kind of the, I think the social element, some of the game stuff too. Uh, but they realized, okay, that's, I'll take what I can get. You know, if they're willing to play chess and the main reason they're there is because they've seen their friends, that's not a bad thing. And you mentioned in the article that you actually would take turns calling out moves from famous games like Morphe's Opera Game with the girls. Does that mean you guys were actually playing blindfold chess when you were walking to and from school in chess club? Well, yes, but I don't want to overestimate our skills. Um, I think it, I mean, yes, there were about four games. I remember uh, Chris put up on the very first game he put up on the board when he was teaching the older girls, I taught the, uh, the three of us, Katie Frankel, who actually is by far the stronger player, is the national master. Uh, Chris and I were coaches, and we uh, divided the girls up into three sections, mainly by age, but eventually by skill. And the, I remember just um, as I was teaching the girls, you know, basic, basic moves, just how the pieces move. Um, uh, um, Chris put up this game, and it was Chiron versus Jean Leroux, 1929, I think it was. And it just blew my mind because it was one of these, you know, brilliant miniatures. And you know, I think it was over in about 11 or 12 moves. And so I, I just looked at it and I go, oh, this is so cool. I mean, amazing what can be done with so, many, so few moves. And so I started it with that, with the girls, just something to do. We have a long, about a 16-minute walk up a very steep hill, long hill to go from our house to schools. I would walk them in the mornings and, you know, we would do things such as I don't know, memorizing state capitals and I would have them, uh, you know, try to, uh, you know, kind of geographically, you know, starting with Maine and literally kind of following a, a path throughout the states. And then we started doing chess moves. I think a large part of it was not so much that they actually necessarily saw the complete game in their heads, but that they remembered, you know, QF3 or Bishop C4, you know, that kind of thing. And there was kind of a pattern recognition. Um, but, you know, that's where you start. You start where you are and you get better. And that's, you know, the way chess works, I think, is, is you is pattern recognition, spatial concept. Uh, and then sometimes also just the remembering of details uh, of, you know, the QF3 or you know, uh, Knight C3 or something like that. Just the, the sound of it. Um, you know, it's almost like, uh, I remember uh, my son, John, when, when we started lessons with him, so he was, um, Laura and Sophie were having lessons with Arcadia and it was, you know, every other Sunday for, for, for two hours. And then he would start, you know, John, when he was, it was going to sound crazy, but he was two and, you know, he started lessons with him. Now lessons, you know, they were 15 minutes long and, you know, Arcadia was, you know, you know, really trying to teach him how the pieces move. And all John wanted to do was, you know, stack pieces on top of them and then knock them over. And he thought it was hilarious. Um, and so there wasn't a whole lot of chess learning going on, but there was that tactile, you know, love of the pieces. And, you know, I think a lot of kids, if they start really early, that's where they 
begin is just that the, you know how the how the pieces look and how they feel in your hand, and then ultimately what it's like to capture. You know, like that, that just that glorious sense of taking a piece and taking it off the board and putting your pieces down on it and probably clanging together. Um, so yes, but so we did do you know moves um, in our heads um, walking up and down to school and, and back from chess club and. You know, you get better at that kind of thing. It's amazing what kids can do um, from a very early age, and actually adults as well. I mean, adults can get. You know, I literally started basically as a beginner at I think thirty-eight, and you know, if you think about something a little, you know, twenty minutes every day or whatever, you can get semi-decent at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to me about what you said about John and the tactile sense because that's exactly how it was for me when my father started started teaching me at six. It was handling the pieces that was so magical for me and it the, the pieces had magical properties you know the kings were really kings and the rooks were really castles and and so manipulating them was a lot of fun right absolutely i think i, I remember I this this board i had it, it was a folding board it was a, a wooden board and then you could put the pieces inside it and they weren't actually marble i think it was kind of faux marble but they were heavier pieces and I even love the way they, they, they fit inside the, I mean, it wasn't styrofoam, but whatever that, that, that substance is, whatever it was that held them in place inside the board. Just, I think I even remember cutting extra so they fit differently, whatever. But, you know, whatever <laughs> it takes you to get to know the game yeah. and, to, and, and to love the game, that's all, all that stuff is good, you know. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. You know, whatever I think, what do you think you are? You know, and another thing, I, I, looking back on it, I'll be honest, there was some selfishness too, which is, you know, I remember taking uh, the, the girls to birthday parties sometimes, um, and I just, I was not a big fan of birthday parties, you know, it was just long enough, it was like a two-hour two hour event or something, it was just long enough where it really kind of didn't make any sense to go anywhere else, um, you know, to kind of drop them off and come back, whatever, probably at that age, maybe you should drop them off, I can't remember. But um, uh, but then you know you chit chat with parents and that's fun and ever. But at some point you know those birthdays just become mindless because it's just watching kids you know you know be knuckleheads and that's right. fun for a while. But you can do that at home. And so the thing I loved about chess windows was well you know this is I mean it's much more time consuming. I mean these things can you know they can run you know at the lowest level if you're just a parent and you're just there with your kid you know it's probably can run in four or five hours. But if you're there for longer, you know, it can really be a full day. So it's a bigger time commitment, but it's just such a great way to spend time with your kids, you know, especially if you teach them to record. I remember that was one thing that um, Chris really suggested that I do. And so I really was adamant about that. And I remember actually Sophie's first tournament. Um, she came back from our game, one of her games, and um, uh, I think it was one of her first games. And, and I, I said, well, Sophie, you didn't. You know, you didn't record, you know, maybe you passed the fifth or sixth move. What's going on here? And she goes, um, oh, uh, 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 the boy told me it was bothering him. So I stopped. And I was a guy named uh, Julius Wade, who was there, too, with his kids uh, and who are really strong players. Uh, you know, I Ronald got to be about 1900 at some point. And um, and he just his eyes twinkled when he heard this. He said, oh, it bothered him. <laughs> so, but that's a good thing. Let's do that. I'm mean, not bothering in a bad way, you know, like kicking him under the table, but bothering sense of, and he said, oh, this, you know, this is a great way. This is a girl's natural advantage. You're more patient. You want to record. 
It's your right. You should do it. So I mean, even just that moment, it was an opportunity to to teach this, you know, my daughter to stand up for herself and not let some boy, you know, bully her into doing something. Um, and I mean, it wasn't, you know, bullying per se. He was probably, you know, seven, eight himself. Um, it, it wasn't you know, bad bullying. It was just, oh, this is annoying me. Stop it. Uh, but she did. Um, so I just, you know, the memories like that. I mean, that's, that's a great thing about, you know, chess or like any kind of activity with your kids, competitive activity where, you know, the juices are really flowing and you kind of remember these things. I remember the girls would come back and, you know, we'd analyze their games afterwards and, um, uh, you know, it was just fun. And I remember actually when I, I would, I would get a little frustrated sometimes because or not, probably not sometimes often because, you know, after maybe the eighth or ninth move, sometimes their recording wouldn't be good. I just really couldn't understand that. You know, I thought, how hard can this be? And you just write down the move. And then I remember not long after that, uh, I, maybe it was before, I can't remember, but I think it was after I played my first tournament and I was convinced, you know, I had recorded everything perfectly and I was going to go home and analyze the games, really learn from what I had done, my mistakes. And after about the eighth or ninth move, it was just soup. I mean, I couldn't make, I was just, you know, the white moves are on the black. I skip on the black side of the column. I skip moves. I try to, re it was just awful. And so, you know, anytime I see a parent who is, and I didn't get angry at the kids. I just said, you know, I'll try better to you know record next time. But anytime at a chess tournament, I see a parent being, you know, not too much overstepping bounds, but, you know, being a little rough on kids and say, you know, the mistake or something, or especially with recording, if I happen to be you know, walking by, I'll just kind of, you know, you know, try to pleasantly go, Oh, have you ever played in a tournament? You know, and usually they have it. And I said, Oh, you really ought to try it. it it's, it's amazing what you learn about yourself and how, how well you think you've recorded moves. And uh, it's a lot harder than you look, I, than it looks. I actually remember I had a headache um, when I was playing because my first tournament, um, just because it was so hard to both play the board and record. I mean, looking back on it, it seems so simple and so easy, but it was really, really hard. Um, and you get, but the other, you get better at it with time. But you know, it just teaches you a lot about yourself. I mean, you know, and so I think that's a great thing. Yeah, no, no doubt. Now, most of us grow up with very ordinary names: John Smith, Daniel Lucas. I think when people hear the name Rockefeller, uh, it, it's a name that makes people stand up and take notice. And I think people are very interested in the fact that we have someone with that surname who is a regular chess guy and 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 just a very regular guy. I, I've got to say that I knew you and met you and talked to you before I knew who you were. And you were just another chess guy as far as I was concerned. Yeah, that's. But I think people hear Rockefeller and sometimes they think, this is someone who goes out to dinner in a top hat and spats. <laughs> so um, what, what was it like growing up as a Rockefeller and with such a famous name? Well, I can guarantee you no top hat, um, for sure. <laughs> well, you didn't, you didn't deny the spats. <laughs> okay. Neither, they're, they're, they're also not those. Um, yeah. So I, I guess, I mean, I guess there was a double, double whammy on that, which is that the last name, I think one thing that's helpful is that most people don't associate a person with the name. It's just a famous name itself. And, you know, I think it would be much different uh, if you're, you know, one of your parents or both your parents were, say, celebrities, where you can kind of people would conjure up this, you know, say a film actor or something so it would conjure up a specific person. 
So it's really just a concept, and they people associate money with that. But the the, the double part of it was my growing up in West Virginia. Um, my father was governor, and so that 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 probably more than the name itself um, presented just complications, you know, which is, you know, like, was, we were driven to school, you know, by a state trooper. Uh, and, uh, you know, when my, when my mother didn't take us, we picked up. And it's just, you know, at that age, it's a really tender age. And kids just don't like, in general, don't like feeling different uh, from other kids. And so I think they, they kind of want everything to be, you just want to be a regular person to, to a large extent. Uh, and then I was the other part of it was I was um, I guess at the time what they called a husky or chubby kid. Um, that made it even worse, you know, because you feel self-conscious about your body and you know, you're, so then you're the name and the, and the, and the, and the um, uh, you know, your dad is governor and you live in the governor's mansion. You've got, you know, uniformed police officers dropping you off, whatever. So I think a really good thing that my parents did uh, when I was 12 or 13, uh, just, you know, John's age now, he's in the seventh grade. At the seventh grade, well, no, in this, yeah, the seventh grade, I went to John Adams um, uh, Junior High School in Charleston. And, and then after that, so I guess for eighth grade, um, uh, uh, they sent me to a boarding school, uh, Eagle Brook, and I just loved it. And, you know, I love that school. It's a great, great school. But one of the things I really loved about it was I was nobody special there. You know, they had you know, other very famous um, people. Uh, like, for example, actually, I remember that um, Bill Cosby's son, Enos, uh, went there. Um, and, um, you know, just it was kind of you just fit in because you were nothing special. You were just one of the regular kids. Uh, and so I really like that. Uh, same thing with um, where I went to high school in St. Albans in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, there were kids from, from you know, students from families that were, you know, very prominent. Uh, you know, for example, I remember Jesse Jackson's son. Yusuf was in my class. And, you know, it just became, um, it was nice to fit in and be regular, even among, you know, kind of irregular people. Um, so I really like that. So, um, it was kind of nice, you know, not being in a fishbowl and, 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 and just kind of fitting in. Yeah. You know, that it's, it's interesting. It, it, it almost sounds cinematic to, for someone like me hearing this and looking from the outside in. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's, you know, and, and each person, you know, yeah, as you get older, you kind of realize, oh, you know, as unique as individuals are, um, at some point we're just fitting into a structure, you know? So if you're, you know, your parents, you know, they're 50 governors, right? And they have 50 families and, and, you know, all that you just kind of realize later you realize, oh, I was just in this position. But when you're in that age, you know, everything is just about, you know, you can only really kind of perceive yourself. Uh, and so I felt, you know, really self-conscious about that. And then when I was able to be in a different environment where that was no longer the case, you know, it was just so nice having this, not having it feeling that people were, there was some spotlight on you or you're being, you know, teased or for whatever variety of reasons, you know, uh, just being self-conscious. It's so nice to kind of lose that and just kind of fit in and be much less self-conscious about 
you know, external circumstances you, you can't control. You know, obviously I have no, I didn't earn anything by, you know, being born with his last name. Uh, it's just an accident of birth. Nothing I did or, you know, no accomplishment or anything like that. Um, so just having the spotlight off of you was a really nice thing. Yeah, I, that makes perfect sense. And it also kind of sets the table for the, the main purpose of our discussion, which is this incredible $3 million gift you have made to the U.S. Chess Federation. And to any of our listeners who have been unfamiliar with this story to date, um, first of all, if you're a member, you can access it in uh, our December issue of Chess Life that's available at our website, uschess.org. Um, if you're not a member of U.S. Chess, and I do encourage you to join, uh, we have made this particular story available for free on our website, and I, I will give a link to that in the show notes. So, John, let, let's talk about this $3 million gift, and I, I think the way we'll do it is, first of all, why don't you talk about the your overall reasons for giving and making this gift at this time, and then we'll get into the very specific ways that the money is earmarked. Sure, sure. Uh, I guess I'll start with um, just the way it kind of slowly unfolded. Um, so uh, I'm uh, chair of the development committee. Uh, for U.S. Chess, and so I work closely with um, Jeff Isaac, um, who is director of development, and he was putting together, um, you know, the, the, the giving plan, the giving um, reasons for giving to U.S. Chess, and so he had asked me for, um, you know, a, a, you know a, a small paragraph or something along these lines, just, you know, what did chess mean to me, and so I wrote this piece about my grandfather. And, you know, um, I just thought about it. It was on my mind. And it was right before the U.S. Open. I think this is 2019. Yes. Um, so it was on my mind. And um, so I wrote it. And, you know, I'm at the U.S. Open. I'm a Maryland delegate. And, you know, I've gotten to know Dwayne Barber a little bit over time. Uh, but not too, too well. But, you know, enough to, that we knew each other. And, uh, you know, I knew about the Denker. I knew about the Barber, the Denker for high school kids, the Barber for it was then a K to eight tournament. And I, you know, I think I'd had the idea once or twice before, but not really serious about doing anything about it. But, you know, just in the moment at the US Open, you know, being a delegate, um, I was having a conversation with um, Sunil Wiramantri and, he's, you know, he's chair of the uh, Scholastic Council. And um, I was talking with him, and we have, you know, we've had really long conversations. I remember at one point, actually, at uh, previous um, uh, uh, delegates meeting, one in Madison, we literally had an eight and a half hour conversation. Uh, we, you know, meetings adjourn at five. We go to dinner. There's a group of us, uh, and we had dinner, and then we go in the, you know. In the, hotel lobby and we're just talking talk talk and i look at my watch thinking you know it's, you know, it's time to go to bed it's probably about 10 30 and it was one I think it was 117 in the morning and i just thought how is this possible all right well so just that's background for you know Sunil and i are close and have a very good relationship and i know he also is very close with dwayne barber and so we were talking about some other matters Sunil and i at the time and then i just thought well i have this idea you know what do you think about uh, a tournament a k-5 tournament uh, name it after my grandfather and, you know, would there be any problem? Do you think, you know, Dwayne might not, 
take kindly on that, you know, not give it his blessing. And, and that could be a, a problem. But, you know, and so I was just saying to Sunil, you know, what do you think? And I thought it would come better coming from Dwayne, just in case Dwayne did object to it, which he obviously definitely ultimately, or not ultimately, didn't at all. But I just didn't know. Never not quite know. The other thing is, you know, I've done a lot with Maryland Chess since 2008, but I was relatively new to um, to, to U.S. Chess. Uh, really got in into it through Mike Atkins. Uh, he had, it was about 2016, he sent me an email and said, hey, there's this new thing, you know, the development committee with U.S. Chess, you know, would be interested in joining. I said, oh, absolutely. It was a rather kind of a sleepy committee for a while, um, and we really didn't get going until later. Um so I was kind of a you know, Johnny-come-lately uh, to, to U.S. chess. I know a lot about Maryland chess, but not so much about U.S. chess. And I just felt more comfortable running that through Sunil. And so he spoke with Dwayne, and, and you know, Dwayne said, absolutely. You know, he, he loved the idea. So then, um, then, you know, then we, we um, I talked with Carol about it. Um, and Carol Meyer, the executive director of U.S. chess, and so it was just a five-year commitment. Um, so that was announced and, you know, went over well. Uh, and I remember, oh, the other thing is I remember Dwayne talking about how um, uh, the, the idea that Denker was first floated, uh, that, you know, some of many of the older players were not happy about all these, you know, youngins running around, high school kids, mind you. Um, and so uh, I know there's been some, you know, problems with the notion of you know younger kids running around uh and Sunil told me a story once or, or not a story so much but he was just saying that you know he said look john i've been in you know class of chess for 30 years and you know i work with kids it's, i love it it's my profession but even i at times you know sometimes i'm at a tournament and i'm playing and i, I look around and he goes oh god another 11 year old after play you know so he, he said you know sometimes as we get older we want to just hang out with older players not younger players so I knew that we should be sensitive about that. Um, but it went over well. And then in December of that same year, I was at Grade Nationals. And uh, we were in the hospitality suite uh, in Florida. And I was um, talking with Carol. And I said, Carol, you know, I just, um, I, I think I'd like to, you know, do more. I'd like to endow the, the Rockefeller Tournament, named after my grandfather, obviously not me, um, for, um, you know, K to five kids. And, and I said, you know, I'm, I mean, if, if U.S. chess would be interested, um, I'm thinking about two other tournaments, a K to one and a K to three. Um, but, you know, I wanted to be sensitive about that because, you know, the Rockefeller was new, that's K to five. And then, you know, I'm proposing yet more tournaments for you know, K to three players, K to one players. And I said, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in naming them after Morphe, Paul Morphe. Uh, was the you know um, uh, unofficial world champion from the United States uh, in uh, 1857, 1858, 1858 is when he, when he became kind of unofficial champion. And then um, Grandmaster uh, Ashley um, was the first black Grandmaster you know in the history of the world. Uh, named the turn- two tournaments after them. And and I said, look, but I'm very sensitive. I I mean, you know, there's just been this new K to five tournament. You know, here I am thinking about a K to one, K to three. You know, what if, what do you think? And she she liked it. She loved it. Uh, and I think Alan Priest, also the president of U.S. Chess at the time, uh, he really liked it. But I said, okay, I'm I'm sensitive to the notion that you know these 
older players might not like young players. So I said, what about if, if, if we have it so that, you know, maybe U.S. Chess would have several years to, um, you know, gather support for this. So it wouldn't just be something that people would think, well, we just did the K to five and now we're doing these other tournaments. So I said, you know, what do you think about, say, no obligation to U.S. Chess would have no obligation to start the tournament for three to five years. Uh, and what's funny is that um, uh, uh, Carol came back and said, well, even that might be a little uh, rushed. And so I said, I completely get it. Uh, you know, let's think through a number that would be, that it would be very hard for anyone to really object to. And so the number was 10, you know. So uh, U.S. Jazz is, is not obligated to run these tournaments until 2030, the more and the athlete. Um, I, my, my sense is, I think we, we all hope that the executive board will decide to run, you know, run the two tournaments much sooner than that. But, you know, that's how the sausage gets made. You know, sometimes people have to be very flexible. And I didn't do it begrudgingly. I did it in the sense of, you know, whatever it takes to get these new tournaments. Those are the terms that are acceptable, acceptable to U.S. Chess. Those tournaments work for me. Excellent. And and 2030, I guess, is also about when the uh, pandemic lockdown might end. So that might be perfect as well. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Yeah, let's hope yeah. Uh, sooner than that. Let's certainly hope. So uh, let, let's go down the list of events and initiatives that that the uh, endowment is is setting up, and just give a kind of a thumbnail sketch of uh, who the namesake is, why why you chose that person, and uh, as needed, any any additional details. Um, and by the way, we this creates. A, I'm looking at this. It's four brand new events. It renames one and creates two initiatives. So uh, as, as listeners, as you're listening, just keep that in mind. And the first one is a new event, or actually an event that took place for the first time this year, the John D. Rockefeller III National Tournament of Elementary School State Champions. Sure. Maybe I should step back and just say you know, how the process works, right? Which is so that every state or state affiliate, technically, uh, uh, D.C. is one, and California has two. So technically, there can be 52. Each state affiliate uh, uh, can nominate a player from its state. So it's, it's really a national ter- championship tournament uh, among state champions, uh, which I think is a great way of, you know, kind of spreading out geographically the players. So it's not, it's not just the top 52 players at a, for a certain age group. Um, uh, scholastically in the country, it's, you know, I mean, you probably get the top, let's say 20, 25, but there's kind of a spread there, which I think is a good thing. You know, that's, that's how our system is built. Um, and so it's, it was a way of spreading it out. So it's not just say to California centric or New York centric or, uh, Texas centric. Uh, there's some, you know, real geographic diversity there. Um, and, um, so the the Rockefeller named after my grandfather. Um, that's for K to five players, and um, it. So you know, as I said, the the Dwayne Barber's tournament, the Barber um, was previously for K to eight players. You know, and one of the reasons I wanted to be sensitive with Dwayne was the sense of, you know, would he be okay with the tournament just for middle school players? You know, players in grades um, six through eight, because uh, I think I think very few K to five players were able to qualify from their state to play up, but some did. 
Uh, and he was very generous and gracious about that and said, you know, no problem whatsoever. The more kids playing chess, that's a great thing. Um, so, so that's the, 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 the tournament uh, named after my grandfather. The K to three is named after Grandmaster uh, Maurice Ashley, uh, who I, um, whom I um, got to know, not in person, but through, frankly, YouTube. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, just hearing him, you know, um, hearing, you know, seeing video that would include him, you know, maybe some chess analysis. I didn't really know about Twitch at the time, um, which is a way you can, you know, hear, um, live analysis of games. I subsequently did once I became, you know, kind of hearing more about game analysis. So I really kind of heard about him, learned about, about him, not hearing him live, but, you know, kind of anything that would be on YouTube. Uh, and one thing that struck me was I watched the, um, the induction of the Hall of Fame of Chess in, I don't know which year that was, 2017, somewhere around that. And, um, and you know, essentially he really talked about, and first of all, he's just, he's got this enormous presence about him, right? He's, he's, he's charismatic and he's got this swagger and he talks about, you know, being a, an uh, immigrant from, uh, um, I believe it's Jamaica. And he, you know, comes to the U.S. in, say, age 12. He knew chess a little bit, but it wasn't until he, uh, you know, was in Brooklyn. Uh, and that's where he, uh, Brooklyn High School, I believe. And then that's where he really got good. And he, um, uh, you know, studied with, uh, you know, hearing interviews with him here. He studied with, um, played a lot of chess with, I think it's called the, the uh, brown bears, black bears, um, chess organization. Uh, and, um, you know, and he brings, he said he brings that swagger to his analysis to the first of the board, but then to his, 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 um, an analysis of the games. Um, so the, uh, the KD three tournament will be named after him. I mean, he's, a, you know, he's an incredible ambassador for chess, uh, not just in America, but throughout the world. Uh, I know he spends a lot of time in, in Africa promoting chess, uh, and, you know, does a lot of the, uh, obviously with the St. Louis chess club with Jen Chahade and Yasser Sirawan, you know, the, their analysis, um, you know, a lot of people get to know chess through them and Morphe, um, is, you know, the first, um, unofficial U S world champion. Uh, and the way that happened was, you know, right when COVID struck, um, I guess, I guess it really became, you know, we, I guess it was in early March, I think, was when the country really became aware that there was the first, you know, shutdown or lockdown or when things really got clamped down. Um, and so I thought, you know, let me, uh, let me, you know, this will probably be over in a month. Uh, of course, you know, naive, but that's what I think a lot of people thought at the time. Uh, and so I thought, okay, this is going to be over in a month. So, you know, life back to normal in a month. What can I do for a month here um, since we're basically trapped at home? And so there were some, you know, chess projects that I, I should have done. Uh, for example, there, there are a lot of board numbers that I should have laminated for Maryland Chess's scholastic tournaments. But I thought, you know, that would be just like me to do the regular thing. Why don't we take, why don't I take advantage of this, you know, this bizarre opportunity? A, it seems like a horrible way to say opportunity, but, you know, the circumstance, I should say, uh, of, of being locked down and being at home, you know, with your family during COVID and do something different. And I had been meaning to read Sunil Wiramantri's um, new book, uh, Great Moves. Um, I believe it's Learning uh, History Through Chess. Um, and I'd been meaning to read that for a couple of years, and I just hadn't. 
And so I said, you know what, let's do it. So I sat down and I read it and I reread it and I read it a third time. And it just blew me away. You know, I, I thought I was, I was going to really like it. I had read his, um, um, his first book, uh, uh, Best Moves of a Chess Coach, and really enjoyed that. Learned a lot about chess from that. And um, so I thought, you know, this is just great, learning about the basic history of chess. You know, he, he wrote it so that it could be a school book. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's ideal target or ideal audience would be, you know, middle schoolers and high schoolers. Um, uh, and you just, it's a wonderful way to learn about the history of chess up through Morphe. Um, and I just thought, wow, this is a great thing. And, you know, tons of people should do this. Tons of people should have the opportunity to read this. And, you know, I, I might not have read it for a while had it not been for COVID. I would have probably put off for another year or a couple more years. And, uh, and I just started to think, well, you know, there's these new tournaments, these K to one, the K to three, K to five tournaments and the pre-existing tournaments, the senior, um, uh, and you know, the Danker, the Herring, the Barber, you know, all these great players assembled, you know, wouldn't it be great if, if, if they had the opportunity if they received, you know, each of them, not just as prizes for the top three or the top five players, but if each player were to receive some chess books, you know, just during the award ceremony or the introductory ceremony, um, and you know, chess books, I think that'd be great. And so it was really Sunil's book that really got me to think about, you know, what an amazing thing reading about chess is, and not just not just game analysis. I mean, so. Sunil's book is interesting in many ways, one of which is it's, it has great game analysis, but it's also a lot of stories about chess. And I am not a particularly strong player. I'm, I'm a 1200 player. And so, you know, at some point, it's, it's just not useful for me to read some really strong game analysis books. It's just above my level. Um, but reading, and you know, it's almost like I, you know, we talked about the kind of tactile, your tactile relationship, my son John's tactile relationship to the game. Well, you know, stories about chess are a great way to do that. Um, so you can imagine, you know, parents there with their kids at, at the U.S. Open, um, uh, at the you know, invitationals for three, you know, three days, maybe four with travel, um, and, or perhaps they could even stay longer. And I know the U.S. Chess gives them the opportunity to play in the U.S. Open for 50% of the registration fee. So my hope is that ultimately a lot of um, parents will decide or, you know, to stay for, you know, up to nine days. Um, but, um, you know, the parents are there. You know, I remember that as, a, as a chess parent being, you know, kind of trapped at tournaments, you know, what to do. And that's when I started volunteering with Chris and became a TD and helping out, you know, with, with setting up and breaking down afterwards. But something for parents to do, as well as the players. And I think a lot, a lot of parents, you know, they they might necessarily, they might not be chess players themselves, but anyone can read stories about chess. Uh, you know, like for, for example, one of the ones I remember from Sneel's book um, is um, that, um, you know, uh, there was a moment where uh, he, he's talking about, you know, things we take for granted now, which is, you know, chess clocks, right? Well, in the, in the 1800s, chess, not until the late 1800s, chess, chess clocks were not, not only not regular, they hadn't even been invented, I don't think, until, I'm going to say, 1880, something like that. So just reading about, I don't know, one little detail, there was um, a scorer who's keeping um, writing down the player's moves. At one point, wrote down, 
both players now asleep. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, and there was a, a, a Paulson Morphy game where you know Paulson used fourteen hours, uh, and, and Morphy just barely more than one. Uh, or you know, just or detail of um, I think when when Morphy played Anderson for the for the unofficial World Championship, Anderson said afterwards, you know, uh, in a you know very self-deprecating manner, uh, Morphy takes only you know seventeen moves to beat me, and but the few occasions where I beat him, it takes seventy-seven moves. You know, so the notion of you know chess brilliancies, shorter games, and then you know much longer games. Not that Morphy would beat um, Paulson in a really short game. But, um, you know, just that notion of no clocks. You know, can you imagine that? Playing, you know, chess being all-day events. Um, uh, and so uh, even there was a, a detail where uh, uh, there's a great line uh, Sunil has where he goes that um, it was said of, of Paulson, because wherever his briefcase was, Paulson was not. You know, because he was just so involved in thinking about chess that all the other, you know, externalities of the world kind of disappear when you're thinking about chess, when you're playing a chess and to parents, I really recommend, you know, myself, I only play usually about one tournament a year in the Maryland open, but to parents, I really recommend, you know, don't be self-conscious about if you're not a strong player. I mean, I certainly was not when I first played my first, played my first tournament, just, you know, if you can go to an open tournament with your, with your son or your daughter and play with them, you know, and, and they might be in a higher section. They might be much better than you. Don't feel self-conscious about it. But, you know, there's something amazing about sitting down on the board and being crushed by an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old. Uh, just a, a memory that's coming to my mind was John was playing in the Maryland Open and he played this guy, um, Eddie Ahn, who's a, at the time was, a, I think, a pediatric um, neurosurgeon at Hopkins, you know, obviously brilliant guy. His... his um, son uh, uh, was in our, our chess club and uh you know he and john played I, I think it was about a two two and a half hour game and you know eddie was pouring everything he had into it and he was this brilliant guy and it was my son john and i was you know he was, what he was every was probably 10 at the time or maybe 11 and you know eddie was just every pouring everything in and john was up um and then eventually uh, uh eddie won the way you know a lot of uh a lot of parents will be young kids, which is kind of grinding them out in a long game. The kid gets impatient and blunders and loses, you know. But that's just a, I've been in that situation myself, and then often losing to the kid. It's just an amazing thing to you know, be at that level where you're one on one with a kid and the kid beats you. And you just have to accept it. You just have to go, I lost because the kid was better. That's it. <laughs> Very humbling. So let's talk about the uh, event that's renamed. Uh, we've had the uh, National Tournament of Senior Champions for, I think, two or three years now. But beginning in 2021, it's renamed to the John T. Irwin National Tournament of Senior State Champions. Yes. Well, I um, so my favorite professor, uh, uh, Michael Levine, at uh, where I went to college, he... Um, uh, taught a course on Poe and Baudelaire. And I really loved it. I'd never, I probably had read Poe earlier in, in, you know, like a lot of kids read some Poe when I was younger, uh, but just really loved the, 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 the course. And, you know, we had a senior essay requirement. And so I thought, you know, I'd really like to write on Poe, you know, uh, 
any recommendations. And so he recommended this book by John Irwin, obviously whom I did not know at the time, and called American Hieroglyphics. Uh, and it's about the use of uh, hieroglyphics during the American Renaissance. And I read it, and it just blew me away. I mean, it was so brilliant and so good. And so uh, then um, after I graduated, I lived in Germany for three years. And um, while I was there, I probably shouldn't have been doing this, but I did it. I worked on uh, revising my senior essay, which was on Pose the Gold Bug, and um, sent it to John Irwin, Professor Irwin um, from Germany. And, in, and he was very kind. He read it and he said, you know, let's, let's meet. I'd, I'd love to meet. So even though I spent three years in, in Washington, D.C., I don't think I'd ever been to Baltimore. So I, you know, I drive up to Baltimore and meet in his office. And, you know, he invited me. He was chair of the writing seminars department. So he, um, he invited me into that and said that I, I wouldn't. I didn't wouldn't normally fit into that department. It was it focuses on uh, creative writing, be it fiction or poetry. Uh, but he said, you know, you could work with me in um, um, yeah, in kind of a different way, um, um, and take you know, I took courses with him. And I had uh, when I was in Germany, I had also applied to the German department uh, at Johns Hopkins and had been accepted, but I was writing uh, a really long, um, 80, 70 page essay on um, Freud and um, a story by A.T.A. Hoffman called The Sandman and was really interested in that, and it, but it finished it. And I kind of thought, I think I'm done with this. Um, I don't know if I really want to do this the rest of my life, but I wasn't sure. So I applied to the, the doctoral program at the German department and been, and been um They've been very kind to accept me, but I declined because I just thought, I, you know, it's one of these things where if I make this decision now, maybe, you know, 20 or 30 years from now, I'll go, wait a minute, this isn't what I want to do. Um, so instead, I went to the writing seminars department because I, I realized I wanted to um, get a PhD in English, and I was hoping that I could transfer into the English department. But it was a gamble, right, because I um, had not applied to the English department. I don't think. Um, maybe I had. I can't remember. In fact, I probably had, and it probably been rejected or not accepted. I guess is a nicer way to put it. Um, not sure though. But so I was in the writing seminars department, and then I thought, okay, I'll, I'll apply either again or for the first time. And what that was, uh, fortunately, I, that worked out. Um, but so the reason I you know, moved to Baltimore was John Irwin. He was my dissertation advisor. I wrote on F. Scott Fitzgerald and Faulkner. Uh, and just, you know, I revered John. Um, I would, in grad school, I remember sometimes if there was a, a course I was taking that I, I'll be honest, not particularly interested in, I would find myself, I shouldn't say would find myself, I would make the decision to read John's book, uh, his new book, uh, Mystery to a Solution, which was on Poe Borges and analytic detective fiction. And I would read that um, over and over and over and over again. And not do some of the work I probably should have been doing uh, in these other courses that I wasn't interested in, but the courses that I took with, with him and with Walter Ben Michaels, those were my, uh, my favorite classes. Uh, and I really focused on Michaels and uh, Irwin's books. 
Um, and then they were my two dissertation advisors. And um, and John had written I, I, um, Mystery to a Solution, which was published in 94, so like a year before I, I went to Hopkins, uh, had a lot to do with what, chess. I actually reread all the sections on chess to prep for this interview. And there were, I think, about 70 pages devoted to chess and how Poe and Borges used chess to think through, uh, you know, mind, body, um, philosophical issues. And so chess was kind of a gateway for them to think about, you know, what does it mean to think and how do you, you know, think about the fact that, you know, these kind of, um, we are these physical bodies and yet we have these thoughts, these thoughts don't have a physical manifestation, more of a, a, a metaphysical, metaphysical concept, but how these metaphysical concepts come from this physical body. Uh, um, and, you know, it almost reminds me of, of um, I, I got into yoga, you know, five or 10 years ago, five years ago, I guess. And um, I read this really interesting book uh, by Michelle Goldberg called um, Goddess Pose. And she writes about the, the origin of yoga. And, you know, we think of yoga as current yoga in America, you know, the, the way yoga works. But in the history of yoga is it was actually not about you know, getting fit or being healthy or, you know, vibrant and that kind of thing. It was actually about extracting from the body. So they, you know, these um, yogis would put themselves in these you know, bizarre contortions that were, were painful and, you know, standing on one leg for six hours, you know, something crazy like that. But as a way to abstract from the body. Um, so to have kind of go with this ethereal experience. So uh, my mind went there. It's kind of like that, that sense of how do we have these thoughts? And then chess became a great way of, of a great venue for that. Because of course, um, you know, when you have to, when you're playing someone else, it's, it's like you're playing a mirror image of yourself. Um, literally the person sits op opposite from you in the same way. You know, Queens are on the same side. Kings are on the same, same side. It's like you're playing your mirror image. And the reason that really kind of makes sense is that when you are playing someone, um, you're playing them, but then you're also internalizing them into your thoughts. You're thinking, well, what if he, you know, if I do this, will my opponent do that? And so with each move, you're constantly reevaluating your position. And so they, they, Poe had used chess as a way to think through these problems. Borges picked up on that poor, um, and they, a poet also really thought through um, using a myth of Oedipus and Theseus um, as ways to think through that problem. And so I just thought, well, this is a great thing. And then oh, I remember the other thing was um, John included uh, a, uh, an annotated game that he had won in Hawaii uh, and the, as a footnote to his book. And oddly enough, he had played someone named Borges and not related, but he talked about that and it was kind of an odd circumstance. And so that planted a seed in my mind too, that notion of chess, uh, reading John's book. Now that was in 96, I guess. So long before I had kids, but you know, that's probably one of the reasons I also thought about playing chess with my kids. So I just thought about, you know, honoring John and I'll be honest. Also, there's a sense of, you know, I'm, 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 I'm helping out with these new tournaments, the K to one, the K the, the, the Morphe for K to one, the Ashley for K to three players, the Rockefeller for K to five. It would be wise of me to also, you know, lend my support to the senior tournament because then it wouldn't, you know, maybe the seniors would be more likely to, um, you know, 
not begrudge all these, mm-hmm. you know, yet more munchkins running around. Right. <laughs> open. Right. Uh, yeah, so I, I, there was that too. It was a, a lot to honor John, but then also that sense of kind of a little bit of a political strategic move. I'll be honest. Yeah. Very, yeah probably, probably your wise one. John, also you, you talked a lot about uh, Sunil Weirer Mantry and he is one of your namesakes uh, for the FM Sunil Weirer Mantry National Blitz Tournament of State Champions. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I also thought it would be good to honor someone who, I mean, Sunil's a FIDE master, so he's obviously a very strong player, you know, but he's not an IM or a GM, uh, you know, the way Maurice Ashley, and uh, Paul Morphy, you know, Paul Morphy played before there were titles, uh, but, you know, he was clearly the best player in the world. So Sunil, um, you know, my, I, I first met Sunil, well, so my, part of my plan was to think about honoring someone who is not just a great chess player. So a, a coach or tournament organizer. Uh, so I, I know Sunil organized one of the early, um, you know, K to six national championships. Um, and I met him at the 2009 all girls tournament, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, um, just got to know him there. We didn't talk that long, but just a little bit. And just over the years got to know him and, you know, it heard a lot about his reputation and what he'd done for chess and, you know, chair of the Scholastic Council, just thought, you know, that'd be a great way to say, you know, honoring not just great players, but, but um, you know, people who have contributed to chess in other ways. And obviously, he's also through his two books. Um, so, you know, that was that definitely why I wanted to honor Sunil. And then we, the last two items are both initiatives, a scholarship fund and the book fund. And both are named after your parents. So talk a bit about that. Sure, sure. I just had one more quick thought on Sunil. One of the nice things about the, the Blitz tournament, the Wheel of Montre, is that it's the one opportunity for players to play against each other, not in their age groups. So it's before the invitationals, and it, it's by section, by strength. So um, you know, you could have a, 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 an Irwin player, a senior player, playing against you know a really strong Morphe player, a K to one player. I think that's just kind of a great idea of more like an open tournament, you know, where, where anyone gets to play against anyone. And that does just uh, identify one champion, right? It's not multiple sections. Oh, no, it is multiple sections. It's um, currently there's an under 1600 section, 1600 to 2199, and then a master section for masters only. Um, so yeah, I, we didn't know exactly how many players would play. So we, and so we divided into three sections uh, uh, okay. to separate players that way. Um, but yeah, Great. but with regard to my, my parents, um, my, uh, I'll start with my father quickly, which is that, um, you know, we, we played math games a lot. Uh, as the kid, he wasn't a, a chess player that I'm aware of, but, you know, I played math games with it as a kid and, you know, he, he you know, kind of inspired me and, and, and motivated me intellectually that way. Uh, and the scholarship fund will, um, uh, and I really loved a rough house with him. I mean, that was just a very, something I remember about. And also he really, loved, we, we would throw Frisbees a lot together. And that's something that I do a lot with my son, John. Now we throw an Arabi a lot. Uh, there's this big field we go to and, and throw it. And I think there's a lot of, you know, family personal connections there that I think about, you know, while I'm throwing with John thinking, you know, the passage of time, the cycle of life here I am doing it with my son. Um, and the scholarship fund will so currently the invitationals, the K to twelve invitationals, the there's a prize fund of uh, 
five, three to five thousand, three thousand, two thousand for first, second, and third place. And this will expand that so that the top five players are awarded uh, with prizes of five thousand, four thousand, three thousand, two thousand, one thousand. Well, well, one more thing about your father, though. There, he has a he. While he may not have been a chess player, he has a very strong item that he's associated with in chess, right? I, I, I forgot. You're absolutely right about that. Um, that so he helped out with the National Chess Day, uh, and then uh, you invited him to write you know, a column, uh, my best chess, my best move uh, for chess life. Uh, and um, yeah, so he I, he was it was actually Mike Atkins' idea as well. He um, ran that by me and said, you know, could, could your father help with this? And, um, and so my father did, he, he was really happy to do that. And, you know, it was, it was a, a nice thing for chess that he could do. Um, so yeah, that was, that was, a, that was a nice thing. Um, and so, yes, uh, the book fund, um, I think, well, you know, my mother was, you know, if I, you know, first thing I think about my mother is she's an avid reader. Uh, now, admittedly, not about chess. I don't think she's ever played. Um, I don't think she, she certainly doesn't have the pieces move. Um, so, um, but just the notion of reading is something that really appeals, uh, that she really loves to do and something I picked up as a kid. You know, one memory I have is the three of us, uh, the three kids, maybe four, you know, my younger brother is 10 years older, 10 years younger than I am. Uh, so three of the, the three older, so the four of us would, you know, do kind of an overnight in my parents' room. We would, you know, um, get in sleeping bags and she'd be reading and we'd be you know, giggling or rough house, housing or whatever kids do. And she would just kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of go, quiet library. <laughs> so she just wanted to read. And I was like, all right, I'll tolerate your presence. I mean, she's very loving, but it was kind of a jokey thing. But she also kind of meant it like, all right, be quiet. I want to read. It's, uh, you know, you also remind me of a Bill Cosby joke because uh, what you, you mentioned his son Ennis earlier. He said they all let fathers really want is quiet. That's all we really want. <laughs> right. I also remember yeah, you know, the line where I, I, can, I, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. <laughs> and make another one look just like you. <laughs> right, right. It's great. I forgot, I forgot about that. Um, but so, uh, yeah, so I just associate my mother with reading. In fact, the, the line of work she got into, she's um, president and CEO of, um, of um, uh, WIDO, which is Washington's public uh, TV radio station, uh, Washington, D.C. And she's, she's told me this multiple times. She said, the reason I got into, you know, first PBS, public broadcasting system, and then later WIDO, uh, was I was convinced that TV was rotting your brain, you know, speaking to me. <laughs> uh, she said, you know, I just had to get another way to... You know, getting you getting me to read at that age wasn't going to happen. Uh, uh, remember, I really liked the Hardy Boys books, but that was probably about it. And she said, "But you'd watch a lot of TV." But so I, you know, I tried to get you to watch good TV, you know, Sesame Street, Electric Company, that kind of thing. Um, so I thought, you know, even though my mother doesn't read chess books, just that notion of honoring reading uh, would be uh, a, a nice way to 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 you know um, to to think about her. And the way the way the ideas I'm, I'm hoping that it'll work is there'll be six or maybe seven year cycles of books. So the first would be so each invitational player, including the seniors, would receive, um, you know, five to seven books somewhere in there uh, each each year. And there would be a seven year six year or maybe a seventh year cycle that would you know repeat itself uh, every seven years. Um, so the first cycle would be on Morphe and early chess history, and that would certainly include Sunil's book. Um, the second year, Sunil Laramatri's book, the second year 
focus on the you know the the, the Turk the automaton, uh, which is that you know kind of mechanical automatic chess player Malezils, uh, which Neil writes about, uh, and then Poe, Borges, and, and John Irwin. Uh, so kind of Poe had written a story of Malezils chess player, uh, and obviously also focused on on chess in particular in the Proline Letters. This is his third analytic detective story. Um, and then the third year would focus on tournament honorees. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention, uh, so, you know, books written by or about the, uh, you know, Morphe, Ashley, um, uh, you know, all the, all, all the, all the tournament honorees. Uh, and, and I will, and one thought I had was, um, you know, there's, I don't, I'm unaware of a biography that's been written of Maurice Ashley. Uh, and I know a kind of a person, perfect person. So I'm hoping we'll, at some point, write a, a biography uh, with um, uh, of Maurice Ashley, and that would be uh, Diane Shabazz, uh, you know, who wrote that great book on Emory Tate. Uh, um, so um, I'm hopeful that there will, that would be a book that we that will be written and that would be included uh, among the players given the invitationals, right. uh, uh, among the books given to the invitationals players. So you hear that participants make sure you bring an extra suitcase with you as you travel <laughs> to the U.S. Open each year. <laughs> I, I, actually, one one thought would be. Uh, Maybe uh, like uh, uh, we're th- I'm thinking about um, we're thinking about a, a, a backpack, kind of a chess b- backpack with, with the U.S. Uh-huh. chess. Like yes, it. Uh, but more that would be very cool. Um, but um, and then a four year four would focus on um, you know uh, a kind of a, a, a chain of influence. So um, you know Bobby Fischer, uh, Gary Kasparov, uh, Bruce Pandolfini, and then Josh Waitzkin. Uh, you know if anyone wants to read you know interestingly uh, chess books. Uh, I think like a lot of people, I, one thing that hooked me in chess was not just, um, you know, seeing the movie searching for Bobby Fisher, but then also reading, uh, Josh's father's book, um, uh, Fred Waitzkin's book, searching for Bobby Fisher. And then also Fred's, um, I don't know. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that, but Fred Waitzkin's book, um, mortal, I think it's, I think it's mortal combat, uh, which is on Gary Kasparov, you know, really interesting book, but then Josh himself wrote two books. Uh, the first one, uh, in high school called attacking chess. Uh, and uh, another one called The Art of Learning when he moved on from chess to uh, the martial arts. Uh, and you know, one, thing that, that one thing I just remember about attacking chess that was so interesting is um, um, he, I think the first game he analyzes is a game he played against his dad in 1983. Oh, and this is one of the games I would, uh, Laura and I, uh, Laura Sophie and I would go over as we were walking to school. And, you know, it's a rudimentary game, but from a seven-year-old, he remembers that his dad is copying. He sees that his dad is copying his moves, and he makes this move KH1. I just went over the game last night. Uh, uh, makes this move KH1 in anticipation of his father capturing him, uh, capturing the same way he was um, capturing pieces, and then it allows this you know kind of brilliant I think a windmill where he ultimately can um, you know capture his dad's queen. And so just thinking, wow, like a seven year old can do that. You know, it's just a, at the time. Now, of course, I realized, oh my gosh, all seven-year-olds could do that uh, if, if given the training and the desire. But um, uh, but that was my first encounter with reading about someone so young doing something so great. And by the way, I've been I've been rocking wrecking my brain here. I think that the Whiteskin book you mentioned was actually called Immortal Games. Uh, it was a, uh, about Kasparov's uh, pursuit of the world championship. Okay. Okay. I, I'm maybe I'm misremembering. I thought it was Mortal Kombat, but but you you I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. Um, but yeah, it was about um, Kasparov. He was uh, Fred Waitzkin was in, embedded with um, Kasparov when he was uh, against Karpov in a World Championship, and Kasparov was, you know, 
distracted by political events. It's a really interesting book. Oh, you know what? I just Googled. It's Mortal Games. Mortal Games, not Mortal Kombat. Oh, Mortal Kombat, so I think it's some uh, video game or something, yeah. Um, so in year five, then, the uh, focus would be on the Polgar sisters, Polgar family, really. Um, and, um, uh, you know, Judah Polgar has written three really interesting books. Uh, and I think that'd be a great way to focus on women in chess. Uh, also including the book, um, talent is overrated, which really, which focuses on deliberate practice. And then perhaps also a recent book, the woodpecker method, which, which is just an interesting way for players to think about, you know, self-improvement and improve and, um, getting better and the ways that, you know, the notion that, you know, is it, are you born with this talent or is it, um, something that can be developed? Uh, and you know, maybe there is such a thing as some, as talent. But 99% or probably 95% is deliberate practice. That's the way to really get better. Uh, and then year six would be just kind of more generically on skill improvement and chess culture. And the year seven is something that, that has not been approved by the executive board. I haven't, I haven't um, suggested it to them, but um, uh, probably an idea on blindfold chess. Uh, ben Johnson, um, his chess podcast um, uh, called Perpetual Chess, he had a really interesting interview, I don't know, about a month or two ago on blindfold chess. And, you know, the thing about blindfold chess is it's a spectacle. You know, it, it's, it's something where people can just be amazed by you know, someone seeing, wow, how does, how does this person do it? You know, let alone one game, you know, people can do, you know, uh, well, the world record is, you know, 48 to Morgareev, but, you know, four or five, six, seven, ten games in their heads. How can people do that? Um, and if, and just that notion of there is this thing about the spectacle of chess uh, I think it'd be a great way to kind of draw people in. There was there was a way in the early in the 1800s, uh, even early 20th century, where players earned a living. That was how they, you know, not necessarily through coaching, but you know, through these events. That's how they would, you know, make money and could become kind of professional chess players. Um, so uh, you know, there are great Koltanowski, um, just you know, a number of great players, and then having books focus on that. So there is this book called Blindfold Chess, which is um, uh, would be included. And then, you know, maybe biographies about the players or uh, books written um, uh, or autobiographies or, you know, self-written game analysis. Well, John, on that, we're going to have to end. We're out of time. Uh, this has been a wonderful, wide-ranging discussion. It's been very interesting listening to your chess history and the reasons uh, behind uh, how, how the money is being divvied up. And again, you know, just on behalf of U.S. Chess, thank you so much for this vote of confidence in our future. Uh, it's, it's appreciated by everybody. Well, U.S. Chess means a lot to me, and, and I'm honored um, uh, that, that you invited me, and I appreciate your time. I know it's a great conversation. Thank you very much, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at US Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, and on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you've learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. 
We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.